Welcome to Check the Pantry, coming to you from the KBBI studios in beautiful downtown Homer, Alaska. Each week, we consider one ingredient in many contexts. Today, we're talking about red wine. My name is Jeff Lockwood. My guest for this show is the Grog Shop's Skip Clary, and it's time to Check the Pantry. has never been the everyday drink of Americans. That started out as cider, later became whiskey, and now is beer and soda. Apples, rye, corn, and barley are easier to grow, and production of whiskey and beer is an industrial process that scales upward very well and does not rely heavily on the intrinsic quality of the ingredients. Wine, on the other hand, is an agricultural product. Grapes are finicky to grow and can vary dramatically in flavor and yield from year to year. Making the best wines requires limiting production, and none of those considerations apply as much to beer and whiskey. Right from the start, wine has connotations of being both foreign and expensive. It doesn't help that many of our attitudes toward food are derived from our English heritage, and there is no one in the Western world more obsessed with categorizing things by class than the English. So the English notion that wine is inherently both French and aristocratic crossed the Atlantic more or less intact and still colors how most of us approach wine, even those of us who like it. There's also, from our perspective, much more to understand. Until fairly recently, it wasn't very common in Europe for ordinary people to consume a lot of wine that was made outside their particular region. It simply wasn't that accessible. If you lived in the Rhone, you drank Rhone wines. If you lived in Tuscany, you drank Tuscan wines. And if you lived in southern Spain, you drank wine from southern Spain. Your cheap local stuff was probably pretty decent, and the high end of your local wine was recognizably similar to the Plonk, the way that Hank Williams is recognizably similar to the dude at the local honky-tonk with the hat and guitar. Except perhaps for Northern California, there really isn't anywhere in the States where that is ever held true. We're much more at the mercy of marketing techniques than we are informed by any particular tradition. If you're an American wine drinker, you're starting from the position of someone learning a new language. It's pretty common, even among people who do like wine, to imagine that anybody who claims that this or that bottle is better or worse, or even that they can tell any difference at all, is just trying to make themselves look smart. No doubt there are some people like that, though strangely nobody thinks a habitual drinker of Bud Light is a snob when they go somewhere that doesn't have it, and then complain about having to drink Miller Light. And I've never heard anybody decry the pretentiousness of people who say that Coke or Pepsi is the only cola they drink either. So evidently, most of us are okay with someone making fine-grained distinctions between similar things. This is where the idea of food as language becomes very useful. If I blindfolded you in front of a Chinese movie and you do not speak Chinese, you would be hard-pressed to tell whether or not the movie was a tragic romance or a comedy. You might be able to figure it out based on musical cues or vocal tones, but with no experience watching Chinese movies, you'd probably miss a lot of nonverbal information. 
Now, maybe you acquire a desire to learn more about Chinese movies, or maybe you just shrug and go on to live your life. But if I took the blindfold off you and then declared that your inability to decide whether the Chinese movie was a drama or a comedy proves that all Chinese movies are the same, you would say I was nuts and back away slowly. An ordinary Chinese who saw this interaction would probably come away with the idea that Americans are a strange and inscrutable people and go back to watching their movie. This is Check the Pantry. My name is Jeff Lockwood, and I am here today with Skip Clary from The Grog Shop. Hello, Skip. Morning. It is great to have you here, and we are going to be talking about one of your areas of expertise, red wine. Excellent. Looking forward to this. Let's get things started right away, and I want to I talk about wine basically as a food, mm-hmm. you know, and as something that, that goes along with food, because I think, you know, here in the States, we aren't exactly, like, we don't it isn't a longstanding tradition to have wine with dinner. So no. we tend to sort of imagine it as like a separate drink, you know, as something right. that you're, isn't necessarily going with dinner or we go the other direction and we imagine that it's that like having a glass of wine with dinner is like this incredibly complex subject where you have yeah. to, you know, minutely identify which has got to be just right. Right. Yeah. This grape only goes with, you know, cheddar cheese and right. not Swiss, you know, right. or something like that. So, can you can you yeah. talk a little bit about why wine goes so well with food? Well, it's uh, I mean, if you if you look at European culture, wine and food are inextricably linked. Whether whether you're looking at say the indigenous foods of northern Italy and how well it pairs with the wines from there like Barolo and Barbaresco. Yeah, it goes beautifully with wild boar and parmesan cheese. Go figure. So in Europe, it just it's just part of the culture. It's just normal. I mean, even kids, uh, not that I'm advocating this, but, but you know, um, it's, it's very common for kids to have their own glass of very, very watered down wine with their dinner and not a big glass, but they don't feel like it's something that's closed to them. But in America, we don't, we kind of feel like, like you said, there's, there's like some kind of mystery and ritual to having wine with food that people kind of shy away from because they think they, they don't understand it enough. And that's just rubbish, man. Just, you know, have a burger, have a glass of wine with it. It's just, I, I do feel like it's a shame that, that so much tension is, is part of the equation for people. They're, they're really, um, you can see it in restaurants. People are very reluctant to order wine. They just want somebody to tell them what's the right one. Right. And, and then if they don't like that wine, they have to sit there and pretend they really do because <laughs> otherwise they'd feel like they'd been completely ripped off or taken for a mug. Yeah. There's a lot, there's so much anxiety around you know, just a simple act of enjoying a glass of wine. And that's yeah. kind of what I want to, you know, do on the show today is sort of rip away some of the, some of the fear. Definitely. You know, I, I mean, I've felt it myself a lot, mm-hmm. you know, I still feel it a little bit, particularly if you go to the kind of restaurants where the, the wine list is a book and they plop this, you know, yeah. tome down in front of you. And then yeah. it's just a list of stuff with prices and you're like, well. And it doesn't really explain much. It, it presupposes that you either know what these wines are and what they're what they're going to pair well with, or that you're going to be totally at the mercy of whichever sommelier you're dealing with. But you know what? I've also been to places 
where the sommelier was like incredibly just enthusiastic. Sure. You know, and they're like, what are you thinking about having for dinner? Okay. How much do you want to spend? Right. Oh, okay. Well, maybe try this, maybe try this. And there's an enthusiasm. And, and if they're enthusiastic about what's on the menu, then, you know, like you were saying earlier, treat wine as a food. I think I'd mentioned at one point uh, a while back that I tend to look at wine more as a sauce. And that's kind of how I use it. Like you would use a mignonette with oysters. I would use champagne in much the same way. What are the characteristics at kind of like a basic or like almost like a molecular level of, you know, that makes the wine and the food interact? There's acid in the wine, there's tannins in the wine. And that, how does that interact with the food in your mouth and in your nose? Okay. Tannin is, is a thing that we can't taste it. It's just a sensation. It produces an astringent reaction in the mouth. The reason for that being that tannins will bind with proteins and we've actually got proteins in our saliva. When we drink a really tannic red, like a a real heavy Cabernet, uh, tannins are polyphenolic compounds and they bind with proteins and that's what causes your mouth to kind of dry out. But when you have food, the tannins prefer, if you will, to bind with the food proteins rather than the proteins in our saliva and therefore your mouth isn't so dried out. It's and almost like adding milk to tea then. Exactly. And and anybody that's had uh, like a cup of black tea that had been brewing for too long knows exactly what tannin is because right. that's, that, that's what causes your mouth to dry out so much. Yeah, it gives you the sup-sups as we call it. <laughs> Whereas uh, other, other grapes will rely on acid for their structure, which is why you can have uh, a Pinot Noir with chicken, for example. The acid in the wine kind of cuts through the fat. So, I mean, a good Pinot and a, and a nice fatty piece of duck. I mean, yeah. So in general, like if, if you're, if you're going to have a fattier dish, you'd look for a wine that's higher in acid. Absolutely. If you're going to have something that's maybe leaner, like a big steak, yeah. you would want something that's you'd want more something tannic. A more tannin. Yeah. Um, one thing I find, uh, and this is, this is certainly a salient point in, in a place like Homer where we can get our hands on moose a lot of the the game meat is going to be a lot leaner and so you don't want something too high in tannin i mean a cabernet mm, i i would tend to shy away from that and go with something with a little more acid a little more fruit um, because the tannins are going to just dry that meat out and then it's just not going to be as pleasant so more like something like a syrah instead syrah would be nice uh i really like a grenache because it's not super high in tannin it's not super high in acid it's just kind of middle of the road it's 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 nice so yeah. there's a mass of information on so many wine labels, and some of it is worthless nonsense. But some of it's quite valuable. So I went into the wine room of the Grog Shop with Skip to learn how to pull useful information off of a bottle. And we started with a California Cabernet with a surprisingly detailed label. Just in this case, we've got a, a Dry Creek Vineyards Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, so it's American. It's California. Uh, they list this is way more information than you're going to get on normal American wine labels. They're telling you they're, it's from two different vineyards. We're, we're looking at 17 months in French oak. They're not saying on the front label uh, whether that's new French oak or it's a mixture. They tell you the, the appellation. Now that means the, the, the region that is designated as a very special place for, for grape growing. Uh, they tell you the soil is thin, so meaning that there's a very thin layer of what could be called topsoil, although it's not crazy fertile, you don't want that. And then underneath that, you've got subsoils, and and the um, the vines are going to want to burrow into that to get some water. Uh, it's rocky and iron rich, 
They tell you what the yield is, 3.9 tons per acre. They tell you when it was harvested between September 22nd and October 12th, 2016. They tell you the elevation. They tell you the alcohol, which by American wine law is pretty flexible. A lot of winemakers are telling you, for example, that their wines are under 15% alcohol when in fact they are actually over that. It's usually about 1%. They can, they can fudge that in their own favor. Now, when you look at a label like that and you see that much information, there's a lot you can glean here. So let's, let's start with the alcohol percentage. It's 14 and a half. They even tell you the bricks, which is the potential alcohol. It has to do with sugar and how much the, the yeast can digest and convert into alcohol. So 26.2 bricks. There's a fair bit of sugar there that the yeast are going to be able to feast on and that that results in, a, in an elevated level of alcohol. The altitude of the vineyards is another thing you can look at and draw some conclusions from. The higher the elevation, the cooler the nights are going to be. So even if you've got really warm days, the vines get to cool down and, and take a rest at night and that helps the, the grapes retain some acidity and that makes the wine much livelier, much fresher on the palate, uh, makes it very food friendly, acid and fats respond very favorably with each other. It says the fermentation is lot specific so they're going to have smaller vineyard blocks that they can choose from and say well this one here got a lot more sun so the the sugars are elevated but this one down here got, got a lot of morning fog or shade or whatever so the grapes were were cooler for longer in the day. Extended maceration so that means that the, uh, the juice sat in contact with the skins for quite a long time. That allows a lot of color and flavor extraction. The, uh, the phenolic compounds in the grape skins add a lot, not only to color, but, but certainly flavor. 3.9 tons per acre is not a, a, a particularly high yield. So that tells me that they probably came through the vineyards once or twice during the, the growing season and stripped out some of the bunches of grapes that maybe weren't doing well or were a little bit weaker in the hopes of getting the ones that remained to take up more of the nutrition and gather more flavor over the growing season. The harvest date, it's an interesting fact, but there's not a lot of conclusions you can draw from that unless you know the area really, really well. The fact that it took place over three weeks tells me that they had great weather. They had a fine growing season that year because they could pick and choose. The soil is rocky, so it's well-drained. Um, that means that uh, the grapes are put under much less disease pressure because their roots are, are not getting, their feet aren't getting wet, as they say. So there's, there's a lot less vectors for disease that way. 17 months in French oak, uh, I would be surprised if this wine sat in new oak for very long. Um, it's, it's much more subtle and 17 months is a long time. So I would say it was probably a fair percentage of, of second use oak. French oak is much more subtle than American oak. French oak doesn't give you that heavy vanilla clove baking spice character that is, is so common in, in American Cabernets. It's much more subtle. This is a wine that you can age. French oak tends to give, depending on the level of toast, the barrel maker can make the barrels according to the specifications that, that the, the, the winemakers are asking for. They, they can say heavy toast, light toast, medium toast, whatever. But 17 months is a, is a generous amount of time in oak. That tells me that these guys were willing to spend a little bit of money making this wine. 
Now we turn the bottle over and ah ha ha ha. Okay, the blend is 78% Cabernet. The rest being made up of Merlot, Cabernet Franc, 5% Malbec, and 2% Petit Verdot. So what they're doing there is uh, it's, it's a classic Bordeaux-style blend, and we'll get into blends a little bit later, but the Merlot is going to give you some softer tannins, uh, some, some nice, just a really soft uh, mouthfeel. The, the tannins in a Merlot, if you looked at them under a microscope, are finer than they are in Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, so that's what happens there. 5% Cabernet Franc is going to give you some, let's just call them wilder uh, aromas and flavors, but also a brighter red uh, cherry fruit. 5% Malbec, I would be careful as a, as a wine consumer to not assume that the Malbec that you get in a California wine or indeed a French wine is going to be like it is from Argentina. Big difference, you know, depending on where it's grown. Um, there's a little bit of Petit Verdot and a little bit goes a long way. That can add some floral elements like uh, violet, uh, which is quite nice on a cab like this. Also, uh, certainly when when it's, it's under extended maceration that we talked about earlier, you're going to get more tannic extraction, which makes the wine much easier to age. It's going to age more gracefully. It's not always ready to drink immediately, but that's when you're getting into better better character of wine. Uh, when they can age, there's an American wine label for you. They have to tell you the alcohol strength, but as we said earlier, there's a fudge factor in there. But if they said like 13%, you would know that it couldn't be any more than 14%, which would tell you that the wine probably, the grapes experienced a cooler growing season because they just didn't want to push it that far. It could also tell you that they decided not to ferment it dry and there's going to be some residual sugar in there. In this case, when they say 14 and a half, you can pretty much count on this being a, a dry wine. If they went any further with it, it would be verging into pork territory as far as the strength goes. They don't have to tell you anything about, well, here they're saying the Appalachian is Dry Creek Valley. Well, you know that that wine had to come from 75% of that wine had to come from that specific area. They could take up to 25% from another part of California if they wanted to. So say, for example, we've got a, a total of 22% other grapes. If they decided to grow all their cab in Dry Creek and then take the remaining grapes from another part of California or indeed just on the other side of the boundary of uh, Dry Creek Valley, then they could do that. And they don't tell you that. But yeah, they have to tell you the year. They have to tell you um, the alcohol strength. And then there's all the little disclaimers about if you're pregnant, don't drive a bulldozer and, and chug a bottle of this while you're at it. They have to tell you how much is in the bottle, and that's pretty much it. Otherwise, it's it's open. American viticultural area, so um, for example, Napa Valley is, is a broader term, but you've got some very specific areas like Spring Mountain or Howell Mountain, where because of their, due to their soil, climate, um, their weather patterns, they decided, yeah, this is a special area where we want we want to stand out from the rest of the pack because we feel like our vineyards are special. With Howell Mountain, you know that those grapes had to come from a much smaller area. The other thing that that can be decided when a when an AVA is um, is established, and this happens a lot more in Europe, but uh, the yields tonnage per acre they can control that if they say well yeah we want we want our area to be known for quality and therefore we don't want to 
grab every last berry that we can grow just for the sake of volume and short-term profit. We actually want quality, so we're gonna we're gonna cut back on how much how much fruit we harvest every year. All right, and we will be performing a first on Check the Pantry today. We're very excited. We're going to be tasting some wines in the studio. Skip's going to kind of guide us through, and uh, we'll be talking about our impressions. And the first pair that we're going to be talking about is a red blend from Washington that is a Bordeaux-style blend. And then we're going to be trying an actual a Bordeaux from, from France. So just looking at these wines, the, the first thing that jumps out to me is that the wine from Washington is much, much darker. It's almost like inky purple. Yeah. You know, and you can actually see through the Bordeaux, slightly translucent. Yeah, there's, uh, there was definitely more color extraction in the, in the Washington State wine. And that might just be extended maceration, which, you know, was just recently covered. But also, if, if the grapes came from a warmer climate, you don't have the cooling influence of the Atlantic Ocean. So the, the grape skins are going to get thicker. They're going to develop more of those phenolic compounds that, that can result not just in flavors, but, but color extraction. It's definitely a bluish purple, much denser than the, than the Bordeaux. Um, it, ha- it certainly has a bluer shade to the purple, whereas the Bordeaux is more, let's just say a warmer color. Um, it's not verging into that bricky orange, but it's, it's more, uh, let's just say it's more garnet than ruby. Both of them look young. Um, neither one of them looks like it's, it's got too much bottle age on it. So that would be, you know, if you were doing a blind tasting, those are clues that you would look for. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm giving them good whiffs here. And yeah. one thing I notice is this, that it feels like there's a lot of alcohol coming off of the Washington one. You know, yeah. it, it, it feels a little hot, not, not so much like a Zinfandel where you almost feel like you're going to oh, get drunk from, yeah, I know. Just from the smelling fumes. It, yeah. But uh, I definitely do notice that. So and that could be, there are a couple of different possibilities there. One could be that it's actually just got more alcohol, and that can happen with warmer climate wines. Uh, that's, that's your sort of classic New World situation. You get a lot more warmer climate uh, grape growing uh, than you do in Europe, um, and that can result in elevated alcohol levels. But the other thing is, and, and I certainly notice this a lot with, with some of the Zins coming out of um, warmer parts of California, not only are they high in alcohol, but the alcohol has not become what we call integrated. And so it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. Whereas if the wine maybe has a chance to rest in bottle for a couple of years, those, those compounds tend to start to weave together. So yeah, uh, oak is another thing that will sometimes not be fully integrated into a wine until it's had a chance to sit for a while. There are a lot of wines I've tasted where I just thought they just weren't ready yet. They, mm-hmm. they, they could have either held them back at the winery or they should have said maybe on the label, cellar this wine for a couple of years. It'll be drinking a lot nicer in you know six or eight months time. Right. But, uh, but this one, yeah, it's definitely hotter in terms of its alcohol. I would say maybe a, a less subtle use of oak. Um, and it's, it's kind of funny with, with Bordeaux, oak is not necessarily an assumption you can make. I've had a number of Bordeaux that were made in stainless steel. There's no oak whatsoever, but because the grapes are grown a particular way and the winemaking techniques are a certain way, 
you f you s you think you're smelling oak, but you're you're actually not. It's just the grapes are giving off that kind of character. So is the oak is the oak responsible for that kind of because uh, there's there's almost like a spiciness, like yep. a like a little bit of a clove maybe. Yep. You know something there really is something sitting down like that. Yeah, and that's American oak. The, I would I would say certainly I'm smelling American oak on this wine, and and it might be a lot of a lot of wines that are made in large quantities can be made in stainless steel tanks, but they use oak chips. Right. And that's where the oak tends not to be very well integrated. Because, because there's so much surface area? Yeah, yeah. And it really gives it a, a strong oak punch, but it never seems to get part of the wine in any kind of um, coherent fashion. It just kind of rides on the top. It's just like oak flavor, oak aroma, and, right. and it's really noticeable. In this case, I would, I would expect that they did use barrels, but they, they used a lot of American oak. Um, I, I would say that it's not likely they used French oak here. The, the other thing that I notice when I taste between the two of them is that the, the Washington state is definitely, it's, it's a darker, like it's, it's a berry flavor. I wouldn't say it's necessarily all the way jammy, but it's almost right. cooked, you know, right. as opposed to there is like a, like kind of a blackberry thing going on with the Bordeaux, mm -hmm. but it's more like picking one off the vine. Mm -hmm. And what's, so what's, is that, is that strictly a function of ripeness or is that age or is that how they make the wine? I'm actually getting kind of an astringent, stemmy character to this. Mm -hmm. um, there's got to be some Syrah in here. I was when I first smelled it, I was thinking Syrah. There's a pepperiness to it that I'm certainly not smelling on the Bordeaux. Right. Um, there was always too. I thought, and I get this with a lot of American Cabernets, and occasionally I get it in in Bordeaux too. Mm -hmm. Is like kind of a vegetable quality. Right. You know, almost like. I don't get dill pickles in this, but we were talking like I've actually had wines where I'm like, it tastes like dill pickles. Yeah. But there's definitely like kind of sitting under this, like kind of a something green. You get blends that are predominantly Merlot, but there's also Cabernet Franc. And Cabernet Franc has distinctly vegetal characters, sometimes uh, bell pepper, um, not as strong as you would get. Like a lot of Chilean Cabernet Sauvignon has that character as well. I think it's that's like, why I don't like it. <laughs> I'm really picky about my Chilean cab because I don't want it tasting like bell pepper. You get more, you certainly get some green vegetal character in Cabernet Franc, but it it's it shouldn't be too overt. Right. Um, it's like a note. Yeah. It's there, you know, but it's not like overpowering. Yeah. It's just you kind of something it, that there's plenty else happening. Yeah. There, there's a dimension there, yeah. like one facet. Right. And that's kind of, you know, I don't very often get to taste really excellent, you know, like high-end burgundy and stuff like that. Right. But that's one thing, like when I've had it, it's almost like every millisecond that it's in your mouth, it, there's something different going Absolutely. on. And it yeah. stays and it just lasts forever yeah. and ever and ever. And, it you know, really like 20 does. minutes later, it's still there. You're still communicating. You know? And it's it. yeah. different. And it's, you know, it's it's interesting. There's yeah. something going on there. It's, it's very, and I get this with a lot of Rieslings as well. It's a very dynamic wine it moves around your palate it makes you notice different areas of your your palate and your mouth where you're just going all over the place it's like oh i've got i've got some smoky elements going on here i've got spice over here i've got truffles and mushrooms and you know damp forest floor going on here it's fantastic um and riesling is very much like that as well it just moves around your palate it's it's lively it's active and you got to keep up and that's one thing that i noticed between these two too is you know, when I take a sip of the, the Bordeaux, it mm -hmm. is, it, 
it makes me kind of go, ooh, you know, yeah, there's a little, there's a little like spring there's something right at the end, extra. which is, you know, it's hard for me to, to exactly nail down where, you know, what's the difference, but it feels, you know, like my mouth's a little excited as opposed to the, to the, the one from Washington, which is, it's a little more centering, you know, it's almost, yeah. it's almost at the beginning, it's like really big and it's overpowering, yeah. but then it kind of goes away fairly quickly. It's kind of one dimensional for me. If that doesn't sound too hoity-toity, it just it just kind of lands in the middle of your palate, delivers a very, I think a fairly simple and not overly subtle message, and then just leaves. Yeah. Whereas the Bordeaux is like, no, no, come here, come here. I got more to say. Lean in a little closer. Pay a little more attention. And it just there's just more happening there. I think the 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 Washington State wine is I wouldn't call it jammy, but it's definitely heavier. Yeah. And I would say. When it comes to food pairing, that's where the Bordeaux is really going to stand out. Right. It's got a wide range that it'll work with. This would be outstanding with duck. Um, yeah. It, <laughs> whereas the this Washington State blend is definitely targeted at people who are just going to have a glass of wine on its own. I wouldn't necessarily want to throw this at food that I'd spent hours making in the kitchen. Well, let's carry on with uh, our wine labeling discussion. Yeah. As we've talked about, many of the words on a wine label from Europe can tell you a lot about what's inside the bottle. And since so many familiar wine grapes originated in France, we're going to start our look at old world wines by looking at a few French labels, starting with a cheap and cheerful red from anywhere in France. We talked about American wine labeling. Um, we can have quite a bit to say about European wine labeling um, because now that the, the EU is, is uh, an established thing, there are certain wine laws that are pretty much across the board in Europe. So it's, it's the, um, most people know it as an AOC system. It's, it's changed a, a, a few times, but um, the AOC in France would be Appellation d'Origine Controlée. So it basically means that's an area of designated origin. So in this case, we'll talk about the, the wider picture, which would be Vin de France. So you could, uh, if you were making high volume, in this case, good old chicken red, as, as most people know it, an excellent wine for the money, but it is a Vin de France. So that just means these grapes came from France. They tell you uh, the vintage, they tell you the strength of 13%, and that's pretty much it. They, Yeah, they have to do the Surgeon General's warning about pregnant women driving tractors again, and that's about it. And a few tasting notes, but those are, are pretty subjective, although these guys actually, in my opinion, do a great job. But that's Vin de France, so that is a French wine, and that's it. When you start to narrow it down, Let's go to something made more similar to the wine that we talked about from Dry Creek. This is a Bordeaux. Uh, it's a Bordeaux Superior, um, made and bottled at the Chateau. Everything is, is done there. You won't see tanker trucks uh, going away from this winery to go to a bigger bottling facility somewhere else. Uh, they, they do it all in-house. What we get here is 78% Merlot, 12% Cabernet Franc, and 10% Cabernet Sauvignon. That tells me, as someone who has enjoyed Bordeaux wines for a long time, that this likely comes from the right bank, where there are more clay soils, which uh, suits Merlot. It doesn't mind getting its feet wet. Cabernet Sauvignon hates that. It wants really good drainage, and that happens over on the left bank because the river, uh, the, the Garonne, um, comes through 
and when it takes a bend, it deposits gravel on, on the, the left bank and more silty clay uh, deposits on the right side of the river as it comes around that bend. So in Bordeaux, you'll get different regions where you know that it's mostly Cabernet Sauvignon, and then there are other regions on the right bank where it's mostly Merlot and Cabernet Franc. Sometimes it doesn't have any uh, Cabernet Sauvignon at all. Uh, it just depends. And here, it's probably worth pointing out that like a lot of European wine regions, they found early on, <laughs> really early on, like centuries ago, that making up a blend of grapes would give you some some room to maneuver as far as making your wine every year. If you made it all out of the same single grape every year, you'd have problems because there is vintage variation. So, you know, in a cool year, Merlot is going to be just fine and Cabernet is going to struggle. And bearing in mind that Bordeaux is about as far north as you're going to be able to ripen those grapes. So that cooler weather is really on the margin they're going to have some years that are just absolute disaster. Bordeaux is fairly close to the ocean, so you get you get a lot more moisture coming in off the Atlantic, so there's disease pressure. You get uh, you get hail. You can get a lot of cloud, which really makes a difference because grapes want warmth, but they also need sunlight. So if you had like a really cloudy summer, those grapes aren't going to ripen properly. And so you have to have several different grapes in the blend so that in the years that Cabernet might not ripen dependably, Merlot will do a little bit better. In the years that it's too hot for Merlot and, and it tends to um, over-ripen, you can cut it with a little bit more Cabernet Sauvignon or indeed Cabernet Franc in this case. You can also, let's see what we've got here. We've got another Bordeaux from 2016 made and bottled at, ah, for the proprietor. Mise en bouteille à la propriété. So it's, it's made and bottled for the proprietors of this chateau but not at at the property here they're not telling you they're not telling you any of the grapes uh you are getting a 13 percent alcohol which okay that tells you right there that it did not this is not going to be a jammy wine <laughs> you know they may have struggled in 2016 to to ripen this but they're talking about cherry and black currant so that's probably going to be more more Cabernet Sauvignon in this one and and less Merlot. With with technology and and the grape the understanding of how to grow grapes and how to make wine being much more scientific now than it was even 50 years ago, it's less important now than it has been historically to have a a blend, which is why a lot of American winemakers they're like, "Yeah, we're just making Cabernet. That's all we do." And they don't worry about blending it with anything else. They don't have to. But in a place like the Rhone, where historically you might have a year where, uh, just like with the Bordeaux, where some years the, the, the Merlot does well, some years where the Cabernet does well. In the Rhone, you're going to have years where the Grenache doesn't quite get there, but the Syrah can, can hang on because the weather might be a little cooler that year. So they're going to change the blend a little bit. They're going to adapt. And so it, it basically was their, their sort of safety net where they said, well, yeah, okay, we're, we had a lot of hail that knocked out some grapes that were budding earlier than others, and so the hail destroyed the, the Grenache that year. But the Syrah, because it buds later and can handle colder weather, it did really well that year. So you're going to have some years where you won't get the, the elegance and the softness and richness of a Grenache, and you're going to have the, the broad shoulders, meaty tannins of Syrah and, and Mourvedre. So 
there, the, the, the vintages are going to be a lot more important to keep track of. So in the case of Rhone, you, you've, got, you've got a blend that's been there for, well, centuries. Generally speaking, the Rhone now, uh, they're, they're just knocking it out of the park because they've got their blend figured out. They've got their, their, their grapes. They know their place. And so you, you wind up getting some really good deals. I, I, I just, I love the Rhone because it's so variable for that reason. There's, um, there's so many different grapes they can play with. Um, there's so many different soil types that they can play with. I mean, like in Chateau Neuf, they, they have what they call the pudding stones because there are these big hunks of rock out in the vineyard um, about the size of, well, at least the size of avocados and sometimes a good bit bigger. And it means really good drainage. But what it also does is those rocks that sit right there on the surface of the soil soak up tons of sunshine and thermal energy that they just radiate back to the vines overnight. And that helps them to ripen in a, in a place where it, it could go either way. You tend not to see that in, in America very much because they just have decided on very, very minute levels. Well, this is where we grow our Cabernet. This is where we grow our Merlot. And, and that's what they make. They're much more fertile here, and, and that actually presents a problem for the grape grower because the more fertile the soil, uh, the more the vines themselves want to grow, and there's less pressure on them as an organism to reproduce. Um, so they don't have to produce fruit because the fruit contains seeds. Whereas in Europe, they're, they're well aware that if they push their grapes to the edge of where the plant thinks it's going to survive, then it will produce fruit rather than leaves because it's like, hey, I, I haven't got time for all that, you know, growing stuff. I need to reproduce. And so it will, it'll flower, it'll produce fruit. The plant survives overall. That's why all the tanker truck wine from France comes from the south of France. Yes. They've, they've, got, they've got much higher temperatures. The, the growing conditions are better. Um, they, can, they can pick vineyards where the yields are going to be definitely higher because the soil's more fertile. All right, we've got two new wines to taste. We're having fun here in the studios of KBBI, Homer. <laughs> so for this round, we're going to be tasting a... Uh, Cote de Rhone from France, and we're going to be tasting uh, basically an American version, a GSM, which uh, stands for Grenache, Syrah, and Mourvedre, which are the main grapes that are used in in Cote de Rhone. And these two, they don't have quite the the difference in appearance that the uh, the Bordeaux and the and the the red blend had. But when I smell the, is it Washington? Um, GSM? Uh, it's a California. A California. Mm -hmm. California. When I smell that, I get, I get some, it's very similar uh, in feeling of like, it's almost like kind of hitting you in the face yeah. with, with its aroma, as opposed to the, the Cote d'Aron, which is a little, it's a little more back, you know, it's almost like inviting me There's a little more bit subtlety, more. A lot more subtlety involved here. The other thing that I notice when I look at the two side by side is that the American Rhone, if we can call it that, has a much more watery uh, rim to the color, which tells me it's not as dense. Whereas the Rhone, even though it obviously is going to get lighter out to the edge, it's not as watery. It's not as thin. It looks more like glass than than water. Yeah, you know. And and it's the other thing that you can you can take away from that is that the the Rhone will probably age a little better. I still try to finish a Rhone 
when by the time it's like four or five years old, uh, unless I'm going for a, a higher end Rhone like an Hermitage or something, but that's a different kind of wine. But Cote du Rhone is just a classic blend, and with Grenache being the the main player. Grenache is not particularly age-worthy compared to Syrah and Mourvedre, but in the Southern Rhone, it ripens successfully and and predictably, and so it's a very successful grape for blending. Um, I think the American wine is made to just be, it, this is not a wine for cellaring. You just... Right, you, you just taste it. It's yep. You buy, you drink fine. it. It's nice. You yep. know, it's a nice. It, yep. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, in comparison to the, in between the two, I know, in general, I would prefer to to have the uh, the Côte de Rhone. It feels like there's there's more going on with it. You know, there's more complexity in the mouth. Yeah. And one thing I want to say is that these are all about these are all basically about the same price. These are not expensive bottles. These no. are fifteen dollars roughly for every bottle. Mm -hmm. And in general, have you found this too, where at any given price level, until you start getting into the real expensive stuff, a lot of times European wines are a better bang for your buck yeah. than a lot of American wines. I've certainly found that. Yeah. When you, if you do a blind tasting, like say we were trying these two side by side, we didn't know where they came from, didn't know the price, anything like that. I still think the French wine is going to come out as a higher quality wine. It's, it's, it's got more depth. It's got more complexity. Well, one thing too, that I, it, it, this is kind of a stylistic thing. I've always kind of felt like American wines are at least in the, in the category that I can actually drink. Sure. Uh, I've always felt like they're, they're about sort of grabbing you right at the beginning. You know, mm -hmm. they're like, when you take the first few whiffs and the first few sips, you're like, wow, this is, this is big. It's exciting. And then after a little while, you, they almost get like a little tiring to drink. They do. Um, I, I find, um, when I've done wine events and most of the wines were American, I found my palate getting exhausted pretty quickly because they they just kind of delivered their their message very loudly. And I find the the European wines, and I suppose this is at the risk of sounding snobby, but I just find that they have greater depth. They have a greater range of flavors they they get your attention they get a hold of you and they pull you along whereas the the american wines kind of knock you back in your chair especially like the the zinfandels that are clocking in at 15 and a half percent it's right. like that that's a message delivered loud and clear and, okay <laughs> that's enough <laughs> one thing i was noticing with the uh, the California wine versus the French wine. The California wine, the alcohol in that is is very poorly integrated. It really comes across as hot. Um, whereas the the French wine, I'm not getting that at all. No. Um, the the alcohol is not really that noticeable. Well, we've been in France and we've been in California and Washington for most of the hour. But back in the wine room, Skip fills us in on the basics of Italian and Spanish wine labels, as well as what calling something Shiraz versus Syrah might mean. Italian grapes are a minefield. There are so many indigenous grapes in Italy that it's hard to keep up. Um, there's something like 1,200 plus known indigenous grapes. Luckily, um, a lot of them are still just being grown on people's porches and, and you don't have to keep up with the wine that's made from them because it's just something they make in their, in their barn and they drink it themselves. But uh, if you want to look at the, the, the grapes that most Americans will know, um, certainly Sangiovese has to be up at the top because that's, in a nutshell, that's, that's Chianti. There are other grapes that will be blended with Sangiovese, but it's, it's, that's pretty much it. For, for my money, 
Sangiovese grown outside of Tuscany, no thank you. Um, it's Tuscany is is the home of Sangiovese and and probably ever will be even with climate change. But you also get in the north of Italy, you get uh, the Nebbiolo grape, which produces Barbaresco and Barolo, uh, both grown in pretty much the same region. And it would take a real geek to be able to tell the difference between a Barbaresco and a Barolo at a, at a blind tasting. They all have very elevated levels of tannin and acidity, which is unusual. A lot of people, when they're, I've heard this more times than I can count, they're looking at Chianti's and they see one of the labels has got a little rooster on it. There are other wines like Gabbiano. There's their regular Chianti, there's their Chianti Classico. In Italy, that actually means something. What that means is that the, the Classico part is the original area that was designated for that. So in Chianti, Classico is a smaller region than just straight up Chianti because they revised and said, well, okay, this larger region can also produce Chianti, but it's not called Classico. And you may get, although I don't have any here, you may get some producers of what, w what could be called a Chianti Classico, but they might decide again that the rules were too restrictive and so they just call it a Chianti. No big deal. In Rioja and uh, Ribera del Duero in Spain, those two regions hold themselves to a higher standard than, than the other regions in, in Spain. So there, when it says Reserva on the label, it means something, whereas in America it doesn't. If, you, if it says Vintner's Reserve, they can call it Vintner's Reserve all they want. It doesn't mean that that wine spent extra time in oak or that it, they held it back before release. Whereas in Spain, absolutely means something. If you get a Reserva or indeed a, a Gran Reserva from Spain, that means that it spent extra time in oak, it spent extra time in bottle before it was released. And also in Europe, you need a very, very good vintage quality-wise to call a wine a Reserva or in definitely a, a Gran Reserva because the standards are much higher. So those, uh, Spain in particular, and Portugal too, uh, when it comes to port, but we won't go there just now, there are uh, regulating bodies where you have to send them samples of your wine, they taste them, and they will say either, yes, this is, this is good enough to be called a Reserva or a Gran Reserva, or it's not. So even if a maker says, this is, this is the best wine I've made in 10 years, if the council decide your wine's not all that in a bag of chips, then it doesn't get the designation. When you do see Gran Reserva on a, on a Rioja, you absolutely know that wine is age-worthy, that it was made to the highest standards from an outstanding vintage. In the case of Rioja, you've, you've got flexibility as far as what kind of grapes you use. So, you know, you've got Garnacha or Grenache, you've got uh, Tempranillo. Generally speaking, they're going to be made for aging, so there's going to be more Tempranillo, more tannin um, because of that. Garnacha tends to add really nice fruit, but it, it hasn't got the structure, but it has got amazing fruit and, and a lot of really nice spice character. So that's why you tend to see blends there. Um, each grape's got its own thing to bring to the party. And so, yeah, uh, Gran Reserva in Spain means something. Likewise, in America, if, if we're talking about labels, uh, you see the phrase old vines or ancient vines bandied about. There's actually no legal determination of what that means. So when you see old vines Zinfandel, those vines could have been planted five years ago. 
Okay, so in America, what words do mean something? Very little unless the AVA itself, the, the group of people establishing the AVA, set that out as a, as a thing. It means something different in Oregon than it does in California. In America, there are certain laws that apply, but there are a lot that they're borrowing terms from the Europeans, but they don't necessarily mean something like champagne. Okay, you can get, I hope, hope it's okay to say this, barefoot markets a sparkling wine and they call it California champagne. Well, that's, it's a sparkling wine. Champagne is a place and it's not in California. When you see champagne on an American label, walk the other way. Just walk the other way. Get something decent. <laughs> I don't mean to be elitist about it, but it's like, it's, it's a totally meaningless phrase. And in fact, it's, it's actually meaningful that they, they don't, they don't care. They're just yeah. going to call it champagne. It's kind of weird. I think there's, oh, we don't see it now. Chateau Saint-Michel used to sell their Syrah as Shiraz when Shiraz was a thing because people didn't know that much about Syrah, but they were happy to get Shiraz because it was just gallons and gallons of Australian vino collapso on the shelves that was just like Shiraz. And they knew what they were getting. They knew it was going to be high alcohol. They knew it was going to be, I wouldn't say sweet, but there's definitely some residual sugar in there because it's a hot climate. The, the grapes are really just cranking out the sugars. Uh, Syrah and Shiraz are the same. It's just the Australians called it Shiraz from the get-go, and that's that's what we've got. The thing with Syrah from the Northern Rhone, where, in my view, the best uh, Syrah comes from, although there are some notable examples in Washington State, it, totally different character than the Shiraz from Australia. There are some amazing makers of Shiraz. Oh, here we go. There's a Washington State Shiraz from the Columbia Valley. Um, they're not calling it Syrah, and I, it makes it more marketable to do that. But then again, this is, this is a sub $10 wine. People, when they look at it, they, they can go, oh, Shiraz, I've had those before, I like those, and they just pick it up and go. That's how this wine is marketed. Once you start getting into higher levels of quality where people are gonna look at the price tag and go, mm, do I want that, do I not? They're gonna give you a lot more information and they're gonna call it Syrah. Um, but in the case of the Australians, even the high-rated stuff like Clarendon Hills and, and people like that, they're going to call it Shiraz regardless because that's what they're known for and it's an Australian thing. I have yet to see an Australian Syrah. So if you see a Shiraz and it's not Australian, they're probably going to be making it in that style though. Is it like, Definitely. Is it like Pinot Gris and Pinot Grigio? Where yes. Yeah, if you get a Pinot Gris, it's going to be it's going to be um, definitely done in a richer style. Whereas if you get Pinot Grigio, which is the Italian style, uh, made kind of uh, uh, Pinot Grigio in in Italy is going to be from the north, so the wine's going to be uh, a little fresher, a little livelier. Whereas Pinot Gris, which you will get in say the Alsace in France, it's going to be richer, it's going to be higher alcohol, and it's going to be done in a in a, in a heavier style. And in America, it's more like people are used to buying Pinot Grigio, even though the style might be more like a Pinot Gris, they're calling it Pinot Grigio because it, it's easier to sell. The, the makers in Oregon tend to call it Pinot Gris, and, and I'm happy with that. Um, they're doing a great job with that grape there. But yeah, the Australian stuff, uh, if you see Shiraz, it's going to be in a jammier style, tending toward uh, higher alcohol. 
yeah, it's it's a heavier wine. The the Syrah from say uh, Washington State or or definitely the Northern Rhone is going to be done in a more stripped down austere style, but it's it's going to be it's going to have a, a much beefier structure. It's going to have a lot more of um, that black pepper spice that I like in a Syrah. Well, I think we could probably stay here all morning and well into the afternoon and maybe into the evening. Uh, yeah, tasting. there's a little bit of wine left. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, we're coming to the end of this hour of Check the Pantry. I would like to thank my guest, Skip Clary, who uh, this this is going to be one of his last public appearances before he leaves us for, uh, where are you going, Madeira, Portugal? Oh, we're, we're going to be all over the place. But yeah, I'm going to be uh, running around Europe a, a lot of time in Portugal, definitely some more time in France, uh, Germany. But yeah, hoping to spend a few months on Madeira just wandering around vineyards and sounds like a brutal life it's going to be awful we'll be thinking about you while we're you know enjoying our 60 degree summers yeah uh, <laughs> I, I will certainly be um recording a lot of interviews with winemakers so i'm hoping to get um, um some podcasts out and uh hope to get back to my long neglected blog and all right so it'll be out there well thanks for joining us on check the pantry this week i know we me. we could pick your brain forever because you i think as long as we're asking questions you can keep talking i'll try <laughs> All right. My name is Jeff Lockwood. This has been Check the Pantry. Thank you so much for joining us. And you can join us next week. My guest will be Harrison McHenry, and we will be talking about awful. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood and was engineered today by Kathleen Gustafson. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Eben. This is the third episode of the winter 2019 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI Public Radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.